This episode of the Supply Chain Brain Podcast is supported by Amber Road, a leading provider of on-demand global trade management software and services. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company and what it's offering to international traders. But now, on to the podcast. Social compliance is one of the hottest issues in global trade today, but putting it at the center of your supply chain can be hugely complicated. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The term social compliance incorporates an intimidating number of steps and activities within global supply chains, workplace safety, forced labor, child labor, and banned materials, to name a few. But that's no excuse for failing to be completely up to date on the rules, regulations, and standards that ensure fair and humane practices, from the sourcing of raw materials to the final sale of product. Today, I'm speaking with Cheryl Lane, Customer Success Director with Amber Road, who will help us to understand the biggest issues in social compliance, how companies are faring in that area, where the biggest gaps exist, and how they can collaborate with suppliers to prevent any number of potential violations. In particular, we'll examine the risks that come with multi-tier supply chains involving manufacturers and suppliers that might be invisible to the end buyer. So here is my conversation with Cheryl Lane. Cheryl Lane, welcome to the program. Hi, Bob. It's nice to be here. What, in your opinion, are the biggest issues out there in social compliance today for retailers, manufacturers, distributors, and the like? Wow. That's a big question. From the social compliance side, we're looking at a lot of items in facility compliance. I know just this week again, there was another factory fire in Bangladesh where 23 workers were killed when a boiler exploded. And these things are coming from poor fire protection. That this ongoing facility compliance, social compliance, things that are happening is that people get complacent and don't necessarily keep up on re-inspecting and re-evaluating their supplier base. And doing that in a collaborative manner uh, will, I think, help with some of these issues. So I think the main thing there is this constant back-and-forth collaborative environment with their vendors. One of the other things for social compliance as well is the fact that if the owners don't have a way to constantly follow up with certain items, then that's an issue. Then we get into more social compliance as well as far as the actual product itself and all of the issues of is this going to meet regulatory standards and that there's a lot of back and forth with the manufacturers as well. 
And so, I mean, there are different angles that you come from on the social compliance front. So they have to attack it from multiple areas. I am shocked to hear you say, you know, you're referring to the recent factory fire in Bangladesh. We're only three years away from the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory facility that caused so many deaths and destruction. And the idea that people should still be complacent after that, boy, we sure have short memories, don't we? I mean, what is going on that that people, we see these things in the in the headlines all the time, and yet they continue. Where is the gap there that that is causing people not to pay full attention? And we're going to talk about solutions in a minute, but why are they not fully embracing these solutions already? I think they embrace them, but again, you're relying on a third party to help you. So I think whenever you rely on a on a third party and when you're relying on your vendors, it does bring in a little bit of uh, complexity to the situation, a lot of complexity, I guess. And so I, I think they're all have that best interest at heart of, of trying to do the right thing, but they still have to rely on other people to be able to do that. And without full transparency and without this collaborative environment. I think you've got factory owners and inspectors that may not be going through all of the T's and C's, but that the actual customer on this side is pushing for it. But since they have to rely on that outside source, some things are out of their control. Especially with so many supply chains being multi-tier, you're going up beyond your tier one suppliers Correct. to tier two and three. In the case of Rana Plaza in 2013, the garment manufacturers, the brand uh, manufacturers were shocked, supposedly, to discover that their stuff was even being produced there. They didn't even know. So exactly. really, that's the big issue, isn't it? Just the visibility up to multiple tiers. Right. One of the newer things that is coming out technology-wise is this entire with the transparency and the visibility is now with GPS being so good that you can actually do a marker out there for the inspector that says, no, you are at the exact GPS coordinates and this is the exact street view so that those kind of situations actually do dissipate somewhat. But when you get down to that end tier vendor, it's very difficult. And that is that is something that is coming to light as well. How interesting, if not ironic, that technology allows us to pinpoint the location of people and buildings anywhere on the globe, and yet still we don't have visibility to what's going on inside the buildings. And that, exactly. That's what we're talking about here. What is your sense of the general awareness, first of all, of the business community of the importance of this issue, and then what about consumers as well? Let's talk, talk about the businesses first. Do you think there is a general awareness of Amber Rhodes customers that they need to be paying attention to this? Yes, that that is hands down a 100% true statement that every business, uh, customers as well as just prospects, general folks that we talk to at conferences and things like that, this is at the top of the list. And everyone does know that this facility compliance, the social compliance aspect, what they tell me is the last thing they want to do is end up on 2020, right? That is kind of a bar that is set. And so they are all going out of their way to not have that kind of a press, which 
I think gets us to the second part of the question of what about consumers? From that perspective, as these things become bigger issues in the media, customers are looking at that and going, well, are they socially responsible? How does that work? And and I think the tide of the consumer is changing somewhat in that they're very concerned about, okay, are they meeting some minimum requirements? Are they doing everything humanly possible to ensure that the people that are making my garments are in a safe environment and to be able to execute according to that? So the consumer says, okay, brand XYZ, I trust that you are doing this. But as soon as that disaster hits and it's a big name that's involved in that disaster, they do take a hit. I mean, that is out there that they are taking a hit for those kind of things when they happen. Social compliance as a term embraces so many different aspects of production around the world. Uh, Child labor, unsafe factories, as you referred to a moment ago, poor working conditions, mislabeled materials, illegal sourcing of raw materials from conflict countries and the like. Do you have a sense? I know we have to be paying attention to all of those things, but do you have a sense of which of those is most critical today, which is the most problematic to deal with? Oh, wow. I think the right now, one of the bigger things that are difficult to deal with is more of the product sensibilities of making sure that all regulatory things are taken care of, right? And that because they are now so varied and it gets them into a whole new realm of compliance when the goods are being discussed because you have laws for states, you have federal laws, you have other country laws. So I think from a manufacturer's perspective, that is the most difficult thing for them to control, uh, making sure that they're meeting all of those standards. Uh, I would say that the second most important thing then is pretty in parallel is the social compliance aspect of it for child labor and things like that. But I, I think those things are the, the second portion of that at a facility. Those things are easier to, I think, manage once they have a process in place. It has to be very process-driven and very automated on follow-ups and checkups and things like that. Whereas with the product testing compliance, I think what you're getting into there is that regulation is changing every day and that staying on top of that is very difficult and a a harder-to-manage process. Supplier collaboration is such a big part of the solution. Let's talk about that for a moment. What are some initial steps when you acquire a new supplier? What should you be doing from the very outset of a relationship to ensure social compliance down the line? Great question. One of the first things uh, that when we discuss this with folks out there is that before they even start paperwork with anybody that's even contemplating becoming a supplier of theirs, there's an on-site visit. And that is the number one thing that happens before any of the other information. And then once that first step of the actual on-site visit, then you go through the background check, the restricted parties list, you go through an actual on-site audit from a third-party auditor and be able to make sure they have insurance in place, make sure that they have a management team that's in place that is understanding of what 
your rules and regulations are because these factories are working with multiple customers. So, and each one of them have their own little way of, of doing things. And, and again, that adds to the complexity of this because they may get an audit for one high-end customer and they say, oh, I'm not going to accept that. And then another customer says, I'm not going to accept that. Now I need to do my own. So as these factories are going through these things, they could have 10 different audits in one year very easily because each customer may have a different requirement for them. So it makes it difficult, but truly the very first step is they walk into the facility before anything else, and then they determine whether they'll move forward with them or not. So once we've made the decision to move forward with them, what do you think about the effectiveness of supplier codes of conduct? Those are dead on of, of what needs to happen. Each customer has their own documents with their supplier code of conduct, which will they will need to have signed and returned and notarized and make sure that everyone is on board with that and I mean, that is the regulatory document that says, okay, well, if you didn't follow our code of conduct, then we have every right to terminate the relationship and be able to move away from that without any legal binding commitment. Of course, in most cases where we've seen violations of human rights in the supply chain, the supplier has had a code of conduct with the OEM or the brand owner. That hasn't stopped things from going awry. So I guess having a merely having one is not the solution. Enforcing it is the big challenge, right? Correct. And, and again, that's where we look at the timeliness and making sure that people are revisiting that and making sure that we're not getting one sign off and then five years from now we go back. So it's that constant revisiting and ownership of that relationship between a customer and their factories that is the key to all of this. If you don't have trust in that relationship and you don't have that binding commitment to each other, then that's where things break down. Yeah, you know what they used to say about nuclear packs. They used to say, trust but verify. I think the same thing holds true here. Now, you talked earlier about the importance of supplier audits, on-site visiting on an ongoing basis. Sometimes if the supplier knows you're coming, they can clean up their act, so to speak, and conceal any problems that might might occur. Uh, Do you think they should be, number one, surprise visits? And number two, do you believe in the use of so-called undercover monitors to investigate supplier factories when they don't even know they're being investigated? Well, I think all three of those tools are effective ways of managing. I do believe that if you're coming in for a full-blown initial inspection, that's when a factory obviously knows you're coming, it's going to take a whole day, and if not two, and they go through that. Then I believe after that, then you do the surprise spot inspections because there's always something to follow up with, right? Well, you never let them know when you're coming to follow up. So you kind of invoke that as well. And then if you feel that this factory is just on the edge and you're just not 100% comfortable after those two things, then it has been known that customers do send somebody in undercover and, and just to make sure those, those are extreme cases, I think, for someone where they think they're being untruthful and uh, not upfront with them. So I think all three of those, though, are, are very good tools to have at their disposal. So all is well at this particular factory, your tier one factory. But as we talked earlier, 
very often the problem occurs when subcontractors getting into, get into the picture, and they're often not authorized subcontractors. The brand owner doesn't even know that that subcontractor is making their product. How do you keep that from happening? You've got everything all cleaned up on your Tier 1 factory, but something's going on beyond that. How do you stop that from happening? Well, one of the things that a few of our customers have done is the fact that the named factory has got to be on the initial purchase order and that the vendor, the main vendor, has to disclose every factory that they're dealing with. If that factory is not on an approved list with the customer, then they are not a factory that can be put on the purchase order. And therefore, when we're going to do payment, there are certain terms and conditions that if those goods weren't made in that factory, then they're not liable to pay for it. So there's kinds of checks and balances like that that customers are putting in place. There's always going to be people out there, though, that are going to cover things up and, and, oh, I forgot to tell you, I was moving the factory. I ran out of production space at once. So now I'm going to, I just moved it over there and I didn't think it was any big deal. Well, if it's not an approved factory, it is a big deal. They can get chargebacks for that. There are monetary things that happen and, and as the money, money talks, right? And so when they start invoking these, let's say sanctions, these chargebacks and things like that for not following those guidelines, then that's when the factory decide, oh, okay, I guess I, I need to comply with all of this. So there are those checks and balances that everybody is now being more diligent about putting in place. Okay, so that's following the factory. What about following the product? Companies today are under more pressure than ever before to uncover or to reveal the provenance of their product all the way back to the raw materials from the mine, the field, the farm, wherever. How can they do that in the age of conflict, minerals, and materials of all kinds? What is the key there? The key is visibility and transparency. I mean, it is getting that trusting relationship with your top tier because they're the ones who will drive that relationship with the lower tier. And if you don't have someone that you feel you can work with at that top tier, then you're never going to get a clear indication of what's going on at the lower tier. And having that visibility, having them report to you on a regular basis of, okay, what, what are these downstream factories that you're using, giving that visibility with conflict minerals, giving visibility to the farms. It is a lot of work. I mean, it is a lot of work, and that's why there is a resistance to do this because of just the amount of resources and effort it takes to get to that level, to have that visibility. But on the other hand, you do have customers out there who know that this is the way that they have to go, and they're forging that relationship. They all have big suppliers, right? They all have their top tier. 20% of their vendors are doing 80% of their business, right? And so they are concentrating on building those relationships and they feel they're getting the majority of the information they need if they're getting it from those top 20% of their vendors.
Cheryl, I want to talk to you a little bit about Amber Road itself. Uh, how, as a leader in this area that we're talking about in terms of monitoring social compliance and global trade management in general, how does Amber Road function in that world, and what services does it provide its customers in order to ensure that these things happen? It's been a long ride. I've been doing this, gosh, over 20 years. And one of the things that we have drilled in from the very beginning is the collaborative piece and that we build all of our modules with using the number one thing in the framework, which is the collaboration to bring in that visibility and uh, transparency to all of these processes. One of the key modules that we do offer is on the uh, risk and quality management side with the supplier management and facility compliance and product testing and, and finish good inspection, all of those things that come into play when you're looking at compliance. And we feel that that is a key piece in the industry that people are looking at. What are they most involved in? And the risk and quality are at the very top. Part of the issue with that, though, is that some of these things are hard to quantify because what is that end result of if I'm not compliant one time, right? So that does get you into that, but that's why being proactive, most customers have realized that being proactive in this industry for these risk and quality issues that in the end, their brand integrity is in place, which is huge. They have an automated system, which is going to do that constant follow-up with them so that these things aren't falling through the cracks like they may have in the past. Because in the past, things used to be very siloed. Certain people own certain things. But now with these collaborative supply chain portals that we have, that now everyone has the same view to the same information. So there's that overused cliche of one version of the truth, but it is by far the, the biggest piece that can help all of these customers on the facility compliance, social compliance, um, and that just collaboration with their external partners, their internal partners, and then even third parties, different audit companies, and having that transparency and consolidated data. And those are things that we bring to the table and that they're able to track and manage their corrective action plans. So let's say there was some incident at the facility, then that is visible to everyone. And then that corrective action plan as you go is always intact. The history is always there. They have everything stored and it's all able to be reported on so that they would actually even know out of everything on a social compliance audit across all of my vendors, what is the number one thing that they get wrong, right? What is the number one thing that I have to follow up on? So that helps them. And it's it's not just about a piece of technology, is it? I, I, I assume that you provide a series of services and consulting on the, to help them implement these solutions in a, in a, and, and alter their business processes accordingly, right? Excellent point. Yes, they have. I, I think when we have our customers, the number one thing that they say is, tell me what you know. Tell me what you know. Tell me how you can help us. We want to know what other folks are doing in the industry, and please tell us what those best practices are. Because in the past, as you know probably, people used to buy software and say, okay, it needs to fit my process, right? Um, I want you to customize this and this and this. And in the past few years, we have seen a huge shift to having an 
out-of-the-box best practice that customers now say, maybe my process isn't right. Maybe I have overcomplicated it or haven't done enough. And so the big turn has been towards us going in with our out-of-the-box social compliance, facility compliance, or product testing modules and having them use it for a while, right? It's like, okay, a big conference room pilot. Let's everybody use it as is. And then you tell me, can you change your process to meet this? Or do you still want all of those customizations? So there has been a huge shift in the industry to get more towards a best practice out of the box module that we have as opposed to customizing something specifically for their needs. So www.amberroad.com. Cheryl Lane, I want to thank you so much for talking to us about the critical issue of social compliance in global supply chains, as well as a little bit about Amber Road itself. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bob. It's been my pleasure. I hope this was informative for the listeners, and I appreciated your time. That was my conversation with Cheryl Lane of Amber Road talking about the challenge of social compliance in global supply chains. Our thanks to Amber Road for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. <laughs>